This is the Roaring Elephant podcast from the 23rd of January 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here's my co-host, Jon. Hey, Jon. Hi, Dave. Podcast time again. It is indeed, it is indeed, and a fun-packed news episode we have ahead of us. Yeah, that's just because you got the articles this time, right? This is true. Um, yes, and it's been a week of interesting news. Uh, yeah, apparently, because usually you, you always say you have a bit of a problem finding enough stuff for a news episode, but uh, this time you are way ahead of me. Indeed. I can only guess that uh, everybody's woken up after the uh, the New Year slump and is roaring ahead with uh, all sorts of exciting stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Good. Let's, let's get to it. Uh, yeah, go ahead. All right. So the first one, um, I often keep uh, an eye on what's happening with various Apache projects. Uh, there's just so many of them out there. Um, and something caught my eye, uh, a project going from uh, incubating status to full top-level project. And that project is uh, Apache Travodian. Um, now, this may be uh, a sort of a bit of a... Um, a surprise, but it is yet another SQL on Hadoop engine. Um, don't, but don't don't switch off just yet. <laughs> so it was interesting because I thought I knew most of the players in this space, mm-hmm. and this has been around for you know quite some time before 2014. Um, it, so it, it's got some sort of history behind it, and it just as I said, just gone from uh, incubating to full top level project status. And yeah, I I just never come across it before. So yeah, I it, had a little dig into it. Yeah, it, it kind of shows the the the, the power that uh, big distributions have, because everything that happened that ends up in uh, CDH, HDP, or well, you know, defunct uh, big insights and the other things, mm. those get some limelight. People get to know those things because well, they're present in those distributions. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not by default in a distribution. And yeah, I hadn't heard about this one either myself. And it does yeah, I mean, differentiate. We did quite a while ago um, a review of mm-hmm. the, the SQL engines on Hadoop. And we talked about um, probably, I would guess, five or six engines at more that point, um, if if not even more than that. But this, you know, yep, didn't, show up. for some reason, this uh, didn't, uh, didn't come up. But... It's kind of it's kind of curious um, because it's so um, Travodian is actually a, the Welsh word for transactions, and this is supposed to be far more focused on um, transactional or operational work like SQL workloads on Hadoop mm-hmm. um, than you know many of the other solutions like Hive. Yep. So it's 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 looking at a slightly different space to to some of the SQL engines that we've been talking about previously. Yeah, and it's also more of a, a layered product, right? It's uh, if you look at Hive, exactly. that Hive just runs on its own. It still uh, leverages HDFS and Yarn and stuff like that. The really core uh, Hadoop things, but apart from that, it's just Hive doing its own file system, whatever. Now Travodian. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's spelled with an F, Trafodian, but they've actually included the Welsh uh, pronunciation to be Travodian. So if you're looking yep. it up, it's it's spelled T R sorry T R A F O D I O N. Yep. Um, but this thing is not, uh, I would say, Hadoop native. It's actually built on top of uh, HBase. 
Indeed. And that's something that's be getting a bit of a, a bit of a yeah. I was going to say resurgence, but it's new, so it can't be resurgent. But it's something that's happening more mm-hmm. and more. Because if you look at uh, the Kylo thing, which we talked about earlier, a couple of weeks ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that was also based on HBase, and also in the idea of having more of a transactional kind of uh, way of doing SQL stuff. Um, it strikes me as weird that you would build an, a SQL thing on top of HBase and then not in the way that Phoenix does it by just providing a SQL front end, let's say. But these things actually use NoSQL columnar stores to build a SQL relational database on top of it to give you the, the, the transactional, uh, yeah, fast, uh, low latency, high concurrent IO. Yeah. But it's something that seems to be uh, happening more and more all over. Yeah, I think people people like the the resiliency and the performance of HBase, mm-hmm. and they 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 like it as an underlying store. They just want to do more complex things with it on top. And it's, I mean, it, it's a proven piece of the the big data ecosystem, yep. HBase. So it it does kind of make sense if you're going to do something high performance like that. Then you want to pick something that's you know well known, well understood. Yeah, stable and performant. So. Well, the performant part is the thing that I'm wondering about because they haven't had any benchmarks out. And if you look at their FAQ, it's actually a thing. Yeah. Uh, do you have benchmarks? And they kind of say, well, when people make them, we'll push publish them or link to them. <laughs> Just yeah, cop out, I'd say. There but, is actually a, a YouTube link from um, uh, which is almost completely um, unwatched. I think it's got about 400 views. And uh, it's from uh, HP talking about um, Travodian uh, back in 2014. And they do actually have, they do actually flash up some very quick, um, I, I don't know that I would quite call them benchmarks, but you know, a few bar graphs that, that demonstrate, oh, look, it can do many things at once. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's very little detail on that. And yeah. there's also um, one of the things that I find kind of strange is that seems to be used by china mobile and china unicorn but again looking through the 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 documentation the wiki it talks about sort of um you know current sizes it's been used for as sort of you know 10 nodes and 50 terabytes of data which all of a sudden sounds very honestly it's a very science project to me so i wonder if Mm -hmm. there's Maybe the maybe the the uh, the wiki is out of date, and maybe that's talking sort of uh, maybe that needs to be updated with terms of the size and scale that people are using it, or maybe you know they they can't talk about where it's used in production, mm. but that's just you know the, the public information the they can share. Yeah, but you're right; it's coming from HP originally because I think I yeah. found the slide shares that came with that uh, YouTube. That's it. Yeah. So I'm going to put the links in the show notes, of course. And uh, that actually says that it's a joint HP Labs and HBIT research project. And yeah. they kind of presented in 2414 as a something that extends Haven, the the, yeah, the Hadoop thing that uh, HP was pushing a couple of years back. I'm not really sure if Haven still is a product for them or not. I don't know. I haven't heard anything about Haven for quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it always was a bit of a strange thing, I must admit. I never really... F- understood correctly and completely what it was supposed to be doing yeah but uh, yeah that's where it came from and possibly HP kind of kept it uh, inside them their own organization for their own customers as a kind of I don't know uh, thing they could do that the rest couldn't do maybe that's maybe why it got so silent uh, yeah there's nobody <laughs> talked about it 
Yeah, I don't know. I I do know that it uh, it seems to have quite a strong um, uh, Chinese influence mm-hmm. there, and would make sense given China Mobile, China Unicorn, yeah. because um, looking at the not the committers, but as so much, but the contributors, probably around about a third of the contributors, the major noted contributors, uh, are coming out of China. So. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly seems like it's getting some some sort of fairly significant use out there. So I've yeah. I've actually reached out to a few of the project members, and we'll see if they come back to me. And uh, I think it might might be an interesting uh, spotlight to uh, spotlight session to run. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, the Asian link is kind of interesting because uh, Kyle uh, Kylie is also coming from uh, Asia because they're based in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So it looks like the whole big data thing is very alive in uh, in China and the surrounding region there, which doesn't isn't surprising. But maybe it took some time for them to really get the open source giving back thing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, there's the big firewall of China, which must make things a lot harder. But uh, interesting. Now this uh, Trevodian, sorry, Trevodian isn't entirely as a finished product yet. I'd say because it's TLP now. Yeah. But uh, I looked at the uh, installation uh, documentation. Actually, I have mm-hmm. to look quite a bit because they don't call it an installation guide, but they call it a provisioning guide. Doesn't matter. Basically, it just needs an HBase equipped cluster, and then you download some uh, some jars, some uh, tar, some gzip tar files, and uh, deploy it everywhere yourself manually. They do have integration with Ambari, they say. Although I couldn't yeah. see, find any um, screenshots, see just how good that is. But if it's just a matter of copying over files from all your data nodes, it shouldn't be that hard to do, I would imagine. The one thing I did find, uh, I would say, annoying is that they don't have a yarn integration, uh, but they do say they, it should yeah. work. Yeah, that's that right. That being said, do you need yarn integration for Trevodian if the H base below it already has uh, yarn queues? Maybe. So I'm assuming that the Trevodian will only be working on stuff where your H base is also working, so you can always have some kind of scheduling. Uh, possibilities with uh, the age-based thing, but still, it would be nice if they had that integration in there. Yeah, I mean, it it must it must add some overhead though. So yeah, I, th- I think you you would want you would want it to be integrated in that way. But then, similarly, on the security side, there's sort of seems to be indications that it kerberizes, which is a, mm-hmm. a good yep. start yep. and a yep. mandatory requirement in many places. And it also seems like they've got, you know, the the fundamentals around role-based access control um, in there as well. So I think, yeah, yeah it, that point's good. I think you're right. It, it's still very early days. Mm-hmm. They've just gone uh, top-level project. Um, I think it's I think it's interesting though. I know, I'm yeah, definitely curious to see what what happens next. Yeah, the whole all app cubing, transactional querying, everybody wants to do it on Hadoop and we need to we always have to tell people, yeah, you can't really do it because you don't have the high concurrency you would get from a normal SQL server little thingy. Uh, this really solves a problem that a lot of people have, and yeah, it could be doing. There's actually multiple players now. We have the Druid integration coming into Hive. We've got uh, mm-hmm. Kylin. We've got this these guys, and uh, probably there are probably even more that we don't know about yet. <laughs> yeah, but I do. And I do need to 
I wonder if there's any produ- uh, performance penalty here because you're running it on top on high on H base, which means you have an attraction layer on top of it. There's going to be some handover, some some latency in there. So I'm really curious to figure to find out what the uh, yeah what the benchmarks are, how how close this is to uh, yeah the 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 old guard, the the, the Oracle Steradatas, whatever out there, because mm. that's basically what people are going to be comparing this against, right? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean. The scale will be the area where it would it should hopefully very clearly win, but you know people yeah, but Hive people, has people still need these things to be really performant. Well, I mean Hive's Hive doesn't really do transactions. I mean, no, 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 but you talked about the scale. You said that scale is things going to shine. Yeah, but Hive does does, does that already. The transaction no, sure, is but it need to I was shine. comparing it to traditional operational databases <laughs> rather than Hive. Um, you know, they they t- typically they do transactional stuff well, but they don't scale. This and um, you know should scale <laughs> because of the components that it's based on. But then, you know, will it have that transactional level of performance that people are probably expecting it to have? I don't yeah, know. The high concurrency. Yeah, because uh, typically you want so, high yeah. concurrency as well on the transactional database, and Hadoop is traditionally not very good in high to high concurrency. I mean, if you have a decent, let's say, a couple hundred nodes Hive cluster, how much concurrency would you say you can yeah, comfortably sustain on there? I mean, if you look at some of the the most recent uh, benchmarks that have come out, then you're you're looking at hundreds of users. Okay. Um, with you know adding LLAP and stuff like that in now, so it's it's certainly improving, and that's for a relatively modest environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's probably enough about Travodian for now. But oh, no, uh, maybe not. stay tuned for a bit more later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so next up, um, let's make fun of AI. Ah, uh, AI has or feelings AI. too. Yeah, um, but AI AI had uh, some some fairly significant failures in 2017. This is just a a quick um, ten point article on some of the notable failures. Some of which I remember. Some of which actually I don't recall. Um, mm-hmm. It's an article maybe, on Tech Republic, by the way. So links in the show notes as always. As always. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you want to go through each of them, or should we just? Sort of go as we go down the the ones that we find interesting. Uh, we can go through each of them because uh, I kind of have a, a general a general um, a remark conclusion on this thing, and it makes more sense if you go through all of them. <laughs> all right then, all right then. So first off, um, Google Translate shows gender bias in Turkish English translations. Um, yeah, I mean, this to me just suggests. I guess QA issues. <laughs> uh, not even QA issues. I mean, uh, just to give more more context here. So the idea is that uh, Turkish has a, a gender neutral pronoun, and yep. whenever Google needed to trans or was Google yeah Google needed to translate this into English, mm-hmm. it kind of had to either say he, she, or it, and it took the uh, decision, it made a decision based on the context of the phrase. And what they found is that if the phrase contained the word doctor, he uh, Google tried to, to use he, and if it says something like lazy or nurse, it became a she. So that's showing, yeah, gender bias, definitely. But I but don't think the, this is the, the AI. It's the training set. Exactly, it, it's the training bias. And if you look at us uh, ugly humans, we have bias. 
if I say to my colleagues doctor, they automatically still think of a male person there. And is that wrong? I'll leave it out on the internet to, <laughs> to decide if it's right or wrong. But it's just, it's a fact. We, we are, we are biased. And if people are training in AI, we will train a biased AI. And that yeah. being said, the idea of this AI thing is to translate it as a human would. Now, so, that yeah. kind of means you want the bias, right? Well, if, if you want it to accurately represent the biases that seem to exist, then yeah, kind of. I, I'm kind of wondering if, if, you're on, if you're on a big, I don't know, the European Union, for example, with all of the translators translating between all the different languages there, if one of those uh, live translators is translating this Turkish, how do they decide if it's going to be a he, she, or it? Probably the same way, right? I would guess, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, is is it a, a failure? Well, maybe yes, but not on the part of the AI, in my opinion. Failure of the training, and we'll see that come up yeah. again a bit later. Well, pretty <laughs> so, much for all of them, to be honest. <laughs> well, pretty. I, I don't know. I mean, this next one. Okay, so Facebook chatbot chatbots shut down after developing their own language. Yeah. Uh, Facebook researchers uh, had two chatbots: one called Alice, one called Bob. And it turns out that they apparently developed their own secret language and were carrying on conversations with each other. Um, and the, the social media giant said it was a form of shorthand and that, uh, and then Alice and Bob were given the axe. Um, this to me, I just think is amusing because yeah. <laughs> quite, I mean, is this uh, is this sort of the the very first stages of what Elon Musk thinks will be the uh, the <laughs> great AI Hawkins. rebellion? Yeah, Started Hawkins. off with Alice and Bob, and we we yeah. put a stop to that, but it won't end. Nah, this was a publicity uh, campaign from uh, from Facebook because this came actually at the same time when Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawkins were doing those uh, dire predictions, and that the right or wrong yeah. we'll see in a couple of years, I guess. But the idea of uh, AIs having their own secret language isn't new. Uh, I think it was at Google or at Bing, I don't remember anymore, one of the translation services, they kind of, uh, originally they translated uh, French to English, that was one model, and had another model to do Dutch into English, and another model to German to Dutch and whatever. Mm -hmm. What they're doing now is having a more a, a bigger model that does all the translations. I mean, not all of them, but the ones with the same root, let's say all Germanics, yeah, all yeah. things like that, Slavic and all things like that. And what they found there is that the model no longer did one-to-ones, but always went from source to a kind of their, its own contraption thing it made to the destination mm -hmm. language. And by doing that, it was actually able to do better, uh, I don't know, French-English translations by yep. getting more data to do German-English translations. So this idea of, uh, of the AI having its own little secret language, by lack of a better description, isn't new. And the fact that Facebook shuts this down because they have their own secret language, we don't know what they're saying anymore. <laughs> uh, what I'm wondering is, what was Facebook teaching these guys that they got so scared of them? <laughs> <laughs> who knows maybe they had the nuclear launch codes exactly that. and again you're back to the human uh, bias in there <laughs> <laughs> yep indeed indeed told you i was going to bring it back to that <laughs> yeah that's all right well uh talking of humans um number three autonomous van in accident on first day I mean, this is... A misleading title, by the way. Very. Well, no, it's accurate. <laughs> yeah. The autonomous but... van was in an accident on its first day. 
But really what happened is a human ran into it. <laughs> well, in, a human in, in, in a truck. In their truck, <laughs> basically. Uh, I mean, yes, the, the, the crash could potentially have been maybe somewhat mitigated if the uh, autonomous vehicle had reacted differently, but it still there still would have been a crash because the human in the truck reversed into it. I mean, mm. yeah. Well, I, I think this is a... a, a, a I'm not entirely sure if this is a programming error or a model that wasn't completely worked out yet. Because what happened here is that the, the crash happened because the uh, autonomous car didn't get out of the way, basically. It mm-hmm. saw the, the thing uh, backing into it and it stopped, yeah. just making itself a, a perfect target. Now, I can assume that a lot of the training that these autonomous cars get are training to drive safely and not how to avoid accidents. I mean, it's harder to do that because you have to create accidents to teach the thing to avoid accidents, which is a bit of an expensive thing. And this might just be one of the situations they didn't really model enough. Uh, So when the AI saw this happening, it kind of said, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to cause any problems. I'm going to stop. Yeah, so I I don't think I don't think it's that. I mean, mm-hmm. my guess would be that actually it's deliberate that when it looks like something bad's going to happen, um, my guess would be that it's deliberately not going to react because the problem with it react. So let's say, for example, it had suddenly zipped away in a different yep. direction. Humans. around it aren't used to responding to that sort of um, so that actually may may well have exacerbated exactly. the problem. Uh, so. That's what I meant with it's either a programming thing or a model. So I've talked about the model mm. not being finished, but the other reason, what you're saying now, is that there's simply a programming thing in there that if something wrong happens, then just shut down. Yeah. And for the moment, that might just be, as you said, the best uh, best solution because if yeah. one of those uh, autonomous vans really does start reacting at the speed of AI, humans yeah. will be even worse off. It'll it'll be like a pinball machine. <laughs> but it's something I have to change in the future, right? Because in the yeah. future, I would expect that if I'm in an autonomous car, the thing is going to do everything it can to keep me safe. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you very quickly go into the three laws of robotics at that point. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed. So Asimov still valid today. But um, again, is this a failure of AI? Mm, either it's a hard programming line that says AI stop thinking, which is means it's not yeah. the AI's fault, or a not completely finished trained model, which in this case you might say it's the fault of the AI. But uh, the thing is, do we know when did happen? November in Las Vegas. So that's pretty recent. Yeah, it's only about three, four months ago. Yeah, I remember. So it, it kind of surprises me. It doesn't say whose truck it was. It does link to another article. Does it say whose truck it is? Or whose car it was, sorry? don't care whose truck it was. Is this the, the Google one? Is this the Renault one? Which one is this? That's a uh, shuttle no, so bus. It, yeah, so it's the airport shuttle. Yes. So it's not the most advanced thing, I'd say. Because I know here in Holland that the long parking, we also have autonomous uh, tr- uh, little uh, buses, but they're actually just following a line on the street and they yeah. kind of expect nothing to happen. And when they detect something, yep, the first thing they do is stop, just to let whatever mm-hmm. happens to pass by. So yeah, I think this is a case of uh, old-style AI, even if it's already AI or not. I think it's much simpler than that. But we don't know. Fair enough. Okay, so next up, uh, Google Allo suggested man ever. in turban. Say again? Worst name ever. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I always think about the British uh, sitcom Hello, Hello. Hello, I mean, yeah, I <laughs> it's not the kind of. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, suggested man in turban emoji as response to gun emoji. And again, to me, this just says training. Yeah, training bias. And yeah. again, it's ugly as sin, but when it's a, it's a correlation that a lot of humans make today. And yep. if you build an AI to resemble the humanity, humanity, it will resemble humanity as it is and not our little idealized uh, vision of what humanity should be. So if you want to avoid AI thinking like this, hey, maybe we should avoid thinking like that. Yep, or at least feed it feed it data that doesn't look like that. Yeah, but that doesn't work, right? Because uh, if you talk machine learning, then you kind of have control over what data you feed it because your training set is relatively, and I do say relatively, smallish. Mm-hmm. If you're going to uh, feed an AI, that has to be able to, in this case, just take uh, natural language from anywhere and have some kind of uh, yeah idea around yeah. it. You kind of have to put the AI, quote-unquote, on the internet and make it slurp up everything it can find. So you don't have you have a lot less control on your training data set here in the end. So the what you're saying you're, is that all AIs will eventually end up sending cat pictures to each other. Um, I'm pretty sure they already do, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> the, the Bob and Alice uh, private thing—they were just talking cat yeah, pictures. Yeah, yeah, it was cat pictures, wasn't it? Okay. No, but that, that, that is a valid thing because it's just so hard to get enough controlled data to have an AI do exactly what you want it to do. And yeah. it's also, in many cases, not what you want. Because the idea of AI is that you do not give it strict rules and boundaries of how it should act and react. The idea of AI is give it a lot of data and let it make it up its own mind. No pun intended. And yet, that means that you will give it raw data that has bias in it. Good and bad. Yep. Okay. So, next up. Apple's Face ID beaten by a mask. Yeah, if, I, if memory serves, they actually already solved that somehow a little bit, and it was more of a, yeah, was it a software thing, or I don't know. I mean, for all these face detection things, for all, yeah, AI does face detection, there's going to be a... A, a, a choice between how long does it take to unlock and how how certain do you want to be? Yeah. Because I can guarantee you a model that will never make any mistake. It's going to take two weeks to unlock your phone, but it'll never make a mistake. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. not good. So how far do you draw it back and forward? And I know that Apple really wanted to promote their, look how fast it is. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. does kind of mean you screw down the, the 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 threshold of where it should say yes or no, or, or make the model smaller. Also, don't forget that this model actually has to fit on an iPhone. Yep. So it can't be real, real and it, big, and it it can't chew up too much of the battery life because they're mm. dialing that back. So yeah, you know, exactly. So there's a lot of things that have to go in there. So yeah, it's just a case of uh, is good enough, good enough. And in this case, I think I'd actually read this and had it. And it says one hundred and fifty dollars, but I remember it being more expensive to do that because I had to do a full face scan, do a three D print of that, and I think the eyes were even se- specifically done separately again for the iris thing and stuff. So yeah, sure they faked it, but it's not really meaning that I the AI was bad or that your phone is unsafe because. If I find a phone, I don't know whose it is. So, and, if, and again, if somebody really wants to crack my phone, they'll get around it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So next up, uh, AI AI at the races. Uh, AI misses the mark with Kentucky Derby predictions. After getting all four winners in 2016, it basically failed in 2017, only getting two of the top four finishes. And, I mean, I really can't... That's horse racing. It, you know, it's incredibly unpredictable. All sorts of things happen in a, in a horse race that are uh, maybe agree. only loosely related to the horse's form. So much of it is... Don't agree at all. Lot. No? Okay. Nope. In the end, you're Go right, of it. course, but everything is predictable as long as you are aware of all factors that influence the decision. And the thing about the race is you have no idea what all the factors are and even less the capabilities of capturing all those uh, those mm. factors. I mean, weather, ground, trembles, a horse's health. Uh, there's so much going on there. The model to really predict this is theoretically perfectly f- possible and viable, but it's going to be a while before we can actually make it. <laughs> and that being said, I also think that the guys from the Kentucky Derby kind of intentionally fubbed it because the moment that an AI can actually predict every, everything that's uh, that's gambleable, that's the yeah. end of gambling, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. That's that's where the payouts become very, very small indeed. So, well, no payouts at all. There's no gambling anymore at that point. The moment you have an AI that can actually predict things like this, that's the end of the sport because a lot of the sports, well, thrive on gambling because there's a lot of money going on in there. So maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe. All right. Number seven, um, Amazon Echo. uh, (laughs) Alexa brings the party with her in Germany. So police breaking into an apartment because an Amazon Echo is randomly blasting out loud music uh, when the resident was out. Um, (laughs) The police changed the locks after shutting the Alexa down, (laughs) leaving the resident locked out and with a large locksmith bill. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. it's a fun thing, but it's not AI-related at all because this is just uh, the Amazon not switched on when it shouldn't have switched on. Yeah, yeah. it's a faulty hardware, perhaps. I have no idea what the actual reason was why I did it, but I don't see any involvement of AI in here. Yes, the Amazon Echo is an AI-capable thingy, but the fact that the on-off switch doesn't work, I'm not sure if that's really AI-related, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it's it's like anything else. The, there should be a model that says unless you've deliberately asked it to, should it be playing stuff when you're not around? Uh, yeah, but this is again the same thing we talked about earlier, that the AI doesn't control the entire thing. Just like with the little car that probably had a programming line in there that said, chaos happens, you freeze. This probably has other lines as well. The AI does not control your Amazon Echo. Your Amazon mm-hmm. Echo controls the AI model inside it. At yeah. a certain point in the future, I can see this being flipped around, but I don't think AI is that far yet. Okay, so moving on, let's chew through the last of these because, honestly, quite... Yeah, it gets worse, right? (laughs) Yeah, it does. So we've had the fun one. The fun one was Bob and Alice. The rest of it's just uh, filler as far as I'm concerned. Um, So Google Home outage causes near 100% failure rate. All Google Home devices faced an outage back in June. Yeah, that was was a great networking thing. You probably a software glitch somewhere, so... Yeah, yeah. These things happen. Uh, I mean, that's what happens when you have stuff that's all connected. You know, you get a hiccup, cloud outage, whatever, you know. But even if they're not connected, I mean, if uh, the new Android version comes out, the new iOS version comes out, and there's a bug in it, all Android phones or all iOS phones will go down. Yep. Mm. 
It's okay. a software glitch. Next one. Google Home Minis spied on their owners. As far as I can recall, that was just, again, kind of um, bad settings. Yeah, but the thing that worries me here all worries you. Yeah, I'm worried that if you... The baggage retrieval system at Heathrow, look it up, Monty Python. Um, and it does kind of give away the fact that you can switch on these things remotely. Oh, yeah. And this is where I kind of get a little bit cold feet using these things in my own house because I'm already a bit aware of my phone, maybe the f- camera's working when it shouldn't be working and or recording because that's also been happening uh, in, the, in the past. Mm-hmm. Having all these devices in your house everywhere. Um, how do you know how, see, how, how secure these things are? With secure, I mean, is it my device? Because they all come with a kind of... A monthly fee because you have a service behind it. And are you the owner of that service? Do you really decide what that service does? Uh, it's a bit of a gray area. GDPR isn't going to solve this. And yeah. No. I mean, it should basically because it is about privacy, but I haven't seen anything in GDPR that covers anything like this. And with AI in these little things, that's where the AI connection does exist for me. You don't even have, because typically if you look, talk, talk about mass surveillance, that means somebody is listening to all of those things all the time to decide if it's interesting or not. Or mm. more, more precisely, a lot of people are listening to a lot of devices. By having these things with AI on the device itself, the device itself can decide when it starts putting it through or not. They yeah. had the Echelon a couple of years ago, we had the whole Echelon thing, which did the yeah. same thing with machine learning. Using uh, artificial intelligence, this will only get better, not uh, of course. So, yeah, I mean, it's miles away from the, the subject of the article, to be honest, but it is something that I'm not entirely happy with. The, the, the Googles, the Alexas, the, what are the other ones called? Uh, yeah, I like the technology, but if I really want it in my house, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it come, To my mind, it, it comes down to trust. Yeah. Do you do you trust that they've done a good job implementing that to make it difficult for people that you don't you don't authorize to to access that? Well, they're not even allowed to because the U.S. government insists that they have a backdoor. Yeah, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> and I'm saying U.S. but probably pretty much every government. Chinese devices, I'm pretty sure they have something there too. Russian, same thing. I mean, doesn't matter where it is. Government, big government, they want to be able to do this because and there was a, um, a black hat or a white hat conference a couple of weeks ago, I think, where somebody from ah, it was NSA, CIA, one of the government uh, organizations in the US, really lambasted Apple for making their encryption so hard to crack, saying that Apple had a social. Uh, obligation to put in back doors so they can catch the criminals and stuff like that. Uh, so. Yeah, I did catch that. Yes. Not their finest hour. Uh, no, but it is how they are thinking about it. And if you really look at it from yeah. their point of view, you expect me to catch all the crooks, but you don't give me any tools for it. I can see their reasoning there, but it's a bit, again, how far do you want to go with that? I mean, privacy versus uh, criminality. It's not an easy question. No, no, indeed. Okay. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> no, definitely not. Way above my pay grade. Okay. So, last one. Um, Facebook allowed ads to be targeted to Jew haters. Um, <laughs> Same thing again. Bias. Yeah. Bias. 
bias training. I mean, this also means that Facebook allowed ads to be targeted to Jew lovers. If you remove one, if you remove the other one, I mean, again, it's what people want to hear, right? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I put this, I, I put this in because I thought, mainly because I thought that actually the Bob and Alice one was the best. <laughs> I thought of the whole thing, but it. What really struck me about this is that the majority of this is talking about failures in training, failures of humans, people, yeah, human failures rather than failures of the AI. AI really was just kind of basically doing what it was told. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I would say <laughs> this is probably not the 10 biggest failures of humans in 2017. <laughs> um, we only. made far bigger <laughs> failures than, than these here. Uh, but uh, certainly... Most of these, I think, are failures of humans rather than failures of the AI. Yeah, it really shows the importance of training bias. You really have to be aware of it. And yep. on machine learning, there's some well, there's some uh, protocols and processes around to make sure that that doesn't happen or gets remediated, let's say. But on, a, on the AI and the neural network part, you need that, so much data. It's a lot harder to, to get that out of the, out of the way. Yep. So that's okay. why AI is only at the beginning. It's going, Indeed. it's going places, but it's not there yet. Okay, so let's move away from uh, from um, artificial ignorance or human <laughs> ignorance, depending on your point of view. Let's talk predictions. Actually, one last Ooh. thing. Go for it. Maybe AI becomes perfect when it's as stupid as humans are. <laughs> anyway, oh, back to uh, the next article. <laughs> All right, next article. Um, so this is uh, IoT will be massive in 2018, apparently. And here are the four predictions from IBM. Um, so first one is um, that AI will make IoT smarter and more productive to work with. So these are predictions coming from... Hey, hey, you said we're going to go away from AI. Uh, no, I said we were going to go away from that article. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> These these are predictions from Brett Greenstein, VP of IBM's Watson IoT consumer business. Um, and so his first one was, uh, AI will make IoT smarter and more productive to work with. Mm-hmm. Really just seems to be suggesting that um, a lot of the grunt work will be taken out of uh, dealing with the huge volume of yeah. IoT-related data. Um, yeah, it's IoT at the edge thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's the start of that, definitely. That makes um, sense. Yeah, I, I don't think that anyone would argue with that. The second no, prediction... No, don't go so fast, my dear. Because I okay. think it's a nice, a nice uh, prediction. The problem is, if you want to put AI in your sensors, because that's what he's talking about, you put the AI in the sensor so that the sensor decides when it does or does not send you the sensor information. Putting AI in there means you make your sensor a lot more expensive. And I've actually seen this with the uh, simple Domotica center sensors. And mm-hmm. uh, I used to be able to get a small sensor for, I don't know, a couple of bucks, a couple of euros. I've seen sensors now that cost over a hundred euros. Yeah. And that's because they're all very much more intelligent. True. But I kind of prefer to have one expensive piece of kit that does all the checking and whatever and gets all the stuff from all the sensors because then I pay for that price once. If I have a dozen sensors and I have to pay that price for every single sensor, it gets well, expensive quickly. So I'm not so seeing this, this happening in 2018 yet. It's too, it's so this yet. is why I 
why I wanted to move on to the second prediction, because the second prediction is actually more CPU power will be spent at the edge. So I, th- I, don't, I don't necessarily disagree with what you've just said entirely, but I think the... <laughs> High praise because, coming from no, Dave. No, what, what you said is correct, technically, but I think you're missing something, which ah. is the fact that as you go to true IoT scale... You can, you know, the predictions are that you, you will no longer be able to do that. It's just a dumb sensor. I'll do something intelligent on, mm-hmm. you know, at the destination. Yep. You you won't be able to do that because there's just you'd be pushing too much data. It would be, um, it would be in, uh, financially, that you know, just wouldn't work out. So the reason that they're doing that is they're offsetting the the cost by putting more intelligence at the edge so that the edge can decide what it wants to send. You greatly cut down and limit what you're sending, and therefore the economics can all still work out. I mean, I think it's... I still think it's too early to tell, mm-hmm. and I think that the the more compute at the edge is good, more CPU power at the edge is good, mm-hmm. but... There needs to be a there needs to be a break even point. Like yeah. Sensors costing going from you know, a couple of bucks to a you know hundred bucks or hundreds of, of mm-hmm. dollars. Um, that's probably too far. But them going from you know maybe a, a couple of dollars to maybe twenty dollars and having that level of intelligence, or have, oh. sorry, having that amount of CPU power that you can make those decisions at the edge. I think that is the sort of level oh. that would make a lot more sense. Yeah, but the thing is that you're talking about here about the volume of events becomes too expensive to, 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 to mm. transport, I guess. So you're talking about the network layer there, right? Yeah. If I look at how networking speed and latencies and bandwidth have gone up for reasonably low, keeping low pricing, it feels to me that the CPU cost is more of a burden than what is happening already with the, the whole internet and 5G coming. I'm not paying extra for 5G. I've paid X amount of euros for 3G 10 years ago. True. I'm paying the same amount for 4G, and I'll be probably be paying the same amount for 5G, except for the first or the adopters who always pay a bit more. But it <laughs> really feels like networking is keeping up for the same so price. Networking is keeping up, I agree, but... It's the number of devices that you're that you know you're talking about with IoT scale that mm-hmm. is that's the way the shift is. So it, if if we were talking about the same sort of amount of devices that that we're that we're thinking about today, then I think that would make perfect sense. But when you're talking about um, internet-enabled mm-hmm. shoes, kilts, belts, kilts. watches, nice. mugs. Glasses, you know, internet-enabled wallets, erasers, everything. <laughs> then um, it it goes to it goes to that sort of that phase shift change beyond. But still, I, I'd expect sense. a kind of inter- in-between solution to uh, to come up there with a kind of gateways in between, where the sensors themselves are still pretty dumb, but instead of sending everything from a sensor to the central location, having hubs that each, I don't know, each hub takes 50 sensors, and the hub decides and then passes on whatever it thinks is important. Because mm. that also then, means that the hub can do some intelligence correlation between yeah. things. 
And that makes a lot more sense to me than having every sensor needing to be intelligent. But then, but then you've got the the question around uh, around the glory of standards, haven't you? You know, how do you how do you make sure that all of those um, you know, all of those huge variety of different things can use the same hubs? Well, actually, that makes it easier because the variety of standards, especially at the sensor level, the hub can actually do all of that uh, correlation that that solving the the, the versioning the problem and the, the the format problem. So when it sends, when all your hubs send to the central location, your central location is is the burden of that. So actually, if I'm, if I'm looking at uh, Azure, which I know a little bit about, we actually have something in the IT called the IT Field Gateway, which does exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> so again, yeah, I see CPU power. It's useful to have it. I mean, having a camera doesn't give me 24 hours of black screens because when nothing is moving, but only sends me a couple of frames where, when that bird is flying through. That's great mm-hmm. for my ornithology. Uh, but having your mugs and uh, glasses and everything, having CPU stuff on there, one, uh, my nose already sweats enough from uh, from the glasses without having a heat-producing CPU in there. But <laughs> um, I don't see. And again, this is about predictions for 2018, right? And that's where my thing is. 2018, mm, I think it's going to be too expensive to have all of the CPU power on the edge. We'll see. We'll Even see. Indeed. All right. So oh, the next one... one. Yeah, I I thought you'd love this one. <laughs> um, block train adds block mutability. Block train, the block train. Get on the block train. <laughs> um, Blockchain adds immutability and integrity to IoT transactions. <sighs> it's only sexy if it has blockchain. So it is. It is. And this does. This list of predictions does have blockchain in it. So there you go. Yeah, you, but what's you, a big problem here? Well. The big problem to me is it says blockchain, but it's not going to work. It can't work. Uh, a blockchain yeah. update takes about three minutes. If every event needs to be stored on the blockchain, and you need to store, if you really want to have the integrity and everything and the immutability of every event, you have to have every event by itself being stored on the blockchain. Yeah, it's really going to slow down your IoT. Now, I do know that. Yeah working on blockchain to solve this stuff and maybe it'll change in the future but that means that blockchain needs to update first and I don't see that happening in 2018 so I don't think blockchain and IoT in 2018 mm. now it does work if you're talking about IoT in a, in a way because I give the example here about the um, logistics right because uh, mm-hmm. it does work if you have trucks that to do uh, load over cargo and you have temperature sensors that's fine you need yeah. to have the intelligent sensor there so that the sensor only puts something on the blockchain when your temperature threshold has been uh, gone over or gone under so it all goes together a little bit and I see some limited uh, availability there and definitely with smart contracts that makes sense but I don't think my little webcam that's doing the that's looking at the front door that when somebody rings the bell is going to start putting stuff on the blockchain ever I hope <laughs> yeah I think it just to me, it just read like someone was just wanted something that said blockchain in it because blockchain yeah. equals sexy. Hey, it's it's an article on Forbes, so you get what you pay for it. Yep. All right. So moving on to the last one, which I think for me the, the first and last points on this article I think are the most <laughs> realistic and interesting. And the the last point is massive growth of IoT in manufacturing and industry. Um, 
I don't think there's any doubt that we will see significant increases in IoT because I think we've only scratched the surface of a lot of um, what's being done here. Um, yeah, the only thought I have is that uh, maybe growth isn't the right term, but more the uh, modernization of it because every factory in the world really full of IoT sensors, but they're very dumb because they're first-generation things and they definitely don't have any AI on they're board. They're siloed, like that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I don't think they're going to... Yeah, there's probably going to be a little bit more IoT because, I mean, there's still some room for, for stuff that doesn't use it yet. But if you look, I mean, there's a couple of uh, programs on BBC at the moment that show you how big food uh, factories are making cornflakes and stuff like that. And there's IoT everywhere in those things. What, so, in cornflakes? Uh, yeah, in cornflakes. Yeah. They're called chips for a reason, baby. <laughs> <laughs> nah, the factory, of course. So okay, I think the IoT is there already, but I do think they're right when they say that this kind of smart IoT, let's coin a mm -hmm. phrase, uh, that's going to get, yeah, and that's going to be a, a, a walking together with getting it a cheaper smart sensors and having mass production and mass deployment and buy that can make more make them cheaper again and that's how the whole thing will get rolling so yeah i mean it's uh it's just makes sense yep they do talk about one last thing in the end where they talk about documentation smart it's, documentation yeah, which is under ai the manufacturing documentation thing. Bit strange, but where they have the AI using uh, I don't know local uh, algorithms and whatever to get the information for the person that needs it when he's doing a repair for something. And yeah, I guess that's something that I'm actually looking forward to because when I have a problem I need to solve for a customer or for myself even, first thing I do is go on the internet and start uh, web searching for stuff, and you get so much interesting and less interesting results. So much things that are outdated. So much things that's thought they were talking about your problem but actually weren't having a kind of yeah. assistant that uh, does a bit of uh, reading before i start reading stuff that would save me a lot of time to be honest i mean honestly though the the example that they give you can already do today which is a little bit sad but i mean that the one of the examples they give is knowing the correct tire pressure i mean i will happily admit i've i have said okay google what's the tire pressure for yeah, blah 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 vehicle and it's told me and that's it job done um so uh, in in some ways the mm. the predictions are possibly uh, somewhat dated um but i think yeah it, it's talking about obviously a lot more complicated uh scenarios as well but yeah indeed we will see yes we will see at the end of the year because predictions for 2018 so in about 11 months and a couple in a week Know yeah. for sure. Let's see. Let's see if the IBM guy does better than we do. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, not too hard to be honest. Wait, wait to no, put the, the barrier very low there. <laughs> that is very true. Hey, and uh, I'd like to dedicate this uh, this podcast episode to Bob and Alice. Uh, so, R.I.P. Bob and Alice and your secret language. And on that note, let's close this episode because it's all the time you have for today. We hope you enjoyed this binding of this binding or serving big data. No, the serving of bite-sized big data. Thank you very much. More rambling of Dave and me. We will be back with more rambling next week in a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information about including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the @hoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Give us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and any feedback you may have. 
Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.